This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, September 16th, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. When you scale up small groups to big groups, relationship dynamics change, and necessarily so. Lita Cosmides is an evolutionary psychologist at UC Santa Barbara. We discussed how collective action decisions change with the size of groups. Our brains are evolved sets of computational systems. They're full of lots of different programs, just like your phone is full of lots of different apps, each one specialized for doing a particular task. A lot of the programs in our head regulate social interaction. Um, They regulate when you want to share with somebody, who you want to share with, who you want to cooperate with, who you feel rivalrous towards, um, and so on. So people will often ask, well, is human nature basically good or basically bad? And uh, liberals often say, basically good, we're natural socialists, culture, private property, capitalism corrupts us. Uh, conservatives will often say, human nature is basically bad. Um, we need, uh, you know, we need um, culture to rein in all these this selfishness and exploitive impulses we have. <clears throat> From the point of view of evolutionary psychology, Human nature isn't good. It's not bad. It, it's a collection of, of programs that evolved to solve particular kinds of adaptive problems faced by our hunter-gatherer ancestors. Some of them create amazing things like a mother's love for her child. Um, others create desires for war um, or aggression. Others create desire to share widely with the people around you. And the real question is, which program is activated under what circumstances? Our minds are designed to use uh, cues that the particular um, problem that they were that these programs were designed to solve is at hand. And so, one of the interesting cues when it comes to cooperation and sharing <clears throat> has to do with the experience of luck versus effort in in outcomes. So, hunter gatherers. Um, when when you go hunting, when men go hunting, and it's it's usually men who are doing the hunting, it's a very high variance activity. You might come back four out of ten times with nothing at all, um, and a, most of that variation is due to luck, not skill. There's some skill involved in hunting, but a huge proportion is luck. So what hunter gatherers do is they pull the risk. They store food in the form of a social obligation. Um, you come back with nothing today. I give, and I have something. I give it to you. On another day, there'll be a reversal of fortune. You have something, and I don't. You give it to me. Um, <clears throat> it's very natural to us uh, that when we experience outcomes as due to luck, um, bad outcomes as due to luck, to have the spontaneous impulse to share to share what we have with the person who's experienced the bad luck. It's as if. We have a rule in our head, like he's been the victim of an unlucky tragedy. He's been a victim of bad luck. We should pitch in and help him out. Um, Another rule in our head is the opposite about effort. He hasn't tried, he hasn't made any effort on behalf of himself, so he doesn't deserve our help. So everywhere you go, there's also this concept of that people have about the idea that it's fair when rewards are proportional to, to effort that you put in. And you'll find this idea even amongst um, uh, nomadic five-year-olds in Kenya. Right? I've seen studies on, on this, that they have a notion that the person who worked harder for a given thing should get, get more. Um, so with hunter-gatherers, are they natural communists? Are they not? Neither. Um, with these high variants due to luck 
resources, they share them widely. Um, for gathered foods, where there's not much variance in what you get, and most of it's due to how much you work at it, that they tend to share within the family or with specific recipro reciprocity partners. And for still other goods, they engage in trade. They do all, all of these things. So the question is, <clears throat> how is your mind framing the particular situation that you're encountering? Now, it looks like we all have these programs, and you have them in people who are raised in Western countries as well as hunter-gatherers. It's, it's a part of human nature. And so one thing that seems very natural is when you see uh, an economic situation where people are losing their jobs and they're losing their jobs because the economy is bad and, and so forth, you're experiencing people who are having uh, bad outcomes due to bad luck. It's not that they weren't trying hard. It's that the business that they worked for failed. Right? That, activates, that activates this sharing rule and uh, motivations for redistribution and, and, and so on. Um, of course, sometimes that also makes people want the government to get involved, uh, wants the government to get involved in fixing the situation, but often what the governments do doesn't fix the situation, it makes it worse, it scrambles market signals, it distorts prices, um, and then the economy gets even worse. People aren't investing right, the economy spirals down, more people are out of work due to bad luck, there are not jobs being created, more sentiment for redistribution and for government intervention, and it just keeps spiraling down. Um, you can, by manipulating these variables, you can get people's attitudes about something like welfare to change in an instant. So one of my favorite studies was done by colleagues in Denmark, Michael Bang, Peterson, and Lena Arho, um, where they looked at welfare attitudes amongst people in a Danish, the Danish welfare state and Americans. <clears throat> well, in, in Denmark, the default assumption is that people who are on social welfare, they had bad luck. In the U.S., the default assumption that people make, not knowing anything further, is, oh, that guy was lazy, he wasn't trying, right? And opposition to welfare follows those inferences. People are less opposed in Denmark than in the U.S. But if you have people in Denmark or the U.S., you give them a little situation, you say, this guy, he's worked his whole life, he's worked very hard, he had a work-related injury, he's out of work, he's trying hard to get a job. Both Americans and Danes are more are less opposed to social welfare, and there's no difference between them. If you give another little scenario that says, this guy is lazy, he's never made an effort, he has no particular interest in getting a job, what's your view of social welfare? Then Danes and Americans, they both become more opposed. Again, no difference between the two societies. So the, the cultural, the apparently cultural difference is really a difference in people's default assumptions about how you ended up in this situation but the same sharing rules are being activated in both places. When you talk about a hunter-gatherer society, you're inevitably talking about small groups of people. Yes. So what is the importance of scale it's in, very those, important. in those impulses? It's very important. Our minds were designed for a very small-scale social world where you knew everybody. Um, you could monitor their behavior. If somebody was, if you're trying to do a group cooperative project, you could see who's showing up. You can see who's making an effort and who's not trying. You know if somebody's not showing up because they're sick. You know what's going on. You know who's free riding and who's making an effort and who might not be contributing for a very good reason. That Our minds are designed for that kind of environment. So, for example, economists get puzzled by the fact that 
in these economic games, like the dictator game, where you give somebody $10 and say, well, you can distribute this between yourself and this other person however you want. And they're puzzled that people often will give half of it to the other person. And they say, because I told them that this is a one-shot interaction. I told them it's anonymous. They'll never know this person. So from, an, from a homo economicus perspective, economic man perspective, you would expect the person to give nothing, yet they give something. But our minds were not designed for situations where you meet somebody once and never meet them again. Um, repeated interactions were the rule, not the exception for our ancestors. And our minds, <clears throat> our minds simply assume that you're going to meet people again. And we've been able to show my colleagues uh, and, and, have, have, and, and John Tooby and I have been able to show Max Krasnow, Andy Dalton, that in agent-based simulations of natural selection, that under a wide variety of circumstances, even if you have agents that rationally believe on the basis of evidence that the interaction is one shot, you still get the evolution of a strong disposition to cooperate because the errors, the error of not cooperating with somebody who you are going to have a long-term relationship with is so much worse than the error of cooperating once with somebody who it turns out um, uh, is is not going to be interacting with you more. Um, so selection favors a disposition to cooperate even with uh, in situations where you think you're not going to meet the person again. There is a difference between sharing and paying taxes. Mm -hmm. And uh, I like to joke with my family members, especially my elderly family members, uh, that I never get a thank you note from them for Social Security. <laughs> and they don't think that's very funny. Um, and I think it's hilarious, but it, I think there's a bit of truth to that, the idea that there is no opportunity for you to get the feels, the good feels from being somebody who is charitable or uh, taking up some uh, duty and taking that duty upon yourself. If you don't pay taxes, you go to jail. That's it. Yes. Coercion is disturbing. Um, I, I think often people aren't realizing the coercive nature of that, that. I mean, people often think, oh, well, but it would be nice to help people who need help. And yes, it is nice to help people who need help. The question is, how and are you going to use coercion to do it? And is, and, and is that morally okay, first of all? And second of all, even if you think it is, um, which I don't, um, is a federal government the best way to do that? Um, those are completely separate questions from whether you want to help people who are in need. I don't know anybody who doesn't want people who are in need to be helped. There are real, there are real and interesting questions about what's the best way to do that and what constraints do there need to be on what you can do to another human being. And that's the question that people often don't address when they're thinking about taxation for various programs that they think would be nice. And that's, that seems obvious to libertarians, yes. and it's, it's front and center when libertarians talk about policy, which is that you don't get the option of not paying taxes. Some people go so far as to say taxation is theft. Um, but for a lot of people uh, who align themselves with the political left, the view is this is just something we've got to do. We are a part of this group, much like the hunter-gatherer group that you described earlier. and. You just got to do your part, right? I mean, it, to the extent that you're not 
really processing the extent to which it's coercion. Or even if you are, um, given that we have this psychology of that it's the right thing to do to share widely when people are this uh, have experienced misfortune, part of that same moral intuition is what's with these people who don't seem to want to contribute? Why are they free riding on my efforts? I'm willing to contribute to the people in need, and they're not. They're being free riders. They have to be punished. Um, it's okay to use coercion to make them do something. They're being bad people. In fact, there's research um, from our lab, uh, Andy Delton and Tess Robertson, showing that even when you have collective actions, um, even if people some people want to opt out of the collective action, so they don't want to contribute to the collective action, and they're perfectly happy to not take the benefits of the collective action as well. Um, people still moralize their behavior in a negative way. Um, it, it seems to be that even when the person has no intention of taking the benefits that they didn't contribute to, part of our minds still think that person may be planning to free ride. And they were able to show that to the extent that you think that the person will be able to free ride, you think very badly of them um, when they want to opt out of the. So basically, people are often thinking that libertarians are trying to opt out of a collective action that they think is, call, that they think is called for. In small groups, it's easy to be accountable to one another. Yes. And when you scale that up, that's, that challenge becomes impossible. You can't. In fact, you, you can't. Yes, and it's, if you live with 50 to 200 men, women, and children, so that's not 50 to 200 adults. That's 50 to 200 people of all ages. You know what everybody is doing. In fact, you have no privacy. Um, everybody knows what everybody is doing. And we seem to often have a default assumption that people know what we're doing even when we're it's not clear that they that they do. Um, absolutely, there has to be monitoring and collective action. People working as a group to produce a common benefit and then share the resulting benefits. Um, <clears throat> that doesn't work unless you can monitor who's free riding and who's not. And in fact, there's a ton of data from economics showing that if you don't have punishment, if nobody has the ability to punish free riders, you don't get the, the collective action unwinds. People stop cooperating and the whole project fails. So one thing that drives me a little crazy is sometimes you'll hear people say, communism is such a nice idea, it's just never been tried. Um, and you say, what are you talking about? And they'll say, oh, well, Stalin, he was just a very bad guy. His personality is bad. I think that's exactly wrong. Coercion is a predictable uh, outcome if you're going to organize collective actions on a large scale where you can't, where people are not freely choosing to cooperate together, they can't monitor one another. The only way you can get it to work at all is by coercion. And without the coercion, people won't show up, they won't, they won't work on the project. And you're going to have to keep upping the coercion and upping the coercion. What kind of person is going to become the head of a, of, of a system like that? It's going to be a very coercive person. This is not a personality deviation. This is the predictable outcome of organizing a large-scale factory, farm, et cetera, as a collective action with people with the minds that are designed for a small-scale social world. It, it, it ends up being hellish. Lita Cosmides is an evolutionary psychologist at UC Santa Barbara. Subscribe to and rate this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.